good to see you all in the house of God today, especially on our Labor Day weekend. Um, school started, fall's beginning. It was so nice this morning. It was glorious. But that being said, uh, you know, it's once been said that you can learn a lot about a man by the way he prays, by observing his prayer life, what and how he prays. And I would agree that I think this is a true statement. So it would make sense for us, the people of God, uh, we, want, we would want to know then how our king, how he prayed. How did our King Jesus, how did our Savior, how did he pray, what did he pray for, what was his manner of prayer life? And that, we thought about that and we said, you know what? It seemed good to us to center our, our fall sermon series over the prayers of Jesus. And we're calling it the prayers of the king. And it's going to be a chronological survey going through the beginning of the gospel to the end of the gospel story. Just the prayers of Jesus. How did he pray? What did he pray for? How did that speak to us as his followers who are supposed to be imitators of Christ? And what can we learn about the Christian life? But today we're beginning our series first by laying a foundation. We need to explain and agree upon what this thing called prayer actually is. And you know, this may seem elementary to many of you, and you've walked with Christ for a long time, and you're like, I, I know what prayer is, but we never want to assume, we never want to assume that everybody knows what we're talking about, what prayer is, what the Bible actually says about prayer. So we need to take some time and unpack some general scriptural statements on what this thing called prayer is, and we'll be doing this today by answering two fundamental questions. We're, the first question we're going to ask is, one, what is prayer? And then we're going to follow it up with a second question, the longer question, the bulk of our sermon today. The second question is, why do we do it? Why pray? Why do we spend so many hours over the course of our lives? I'm curious. I didn't look this up, but you ever seen those movies where they do the, uh, the, the average sample of how long you're at a stoplight or driving in your car, and they'll measure it like in M&Ms for days and all that? There's really good videos on stuff where they measure how much you do mundane activities, like how many hours you'll work, and they'll... They'll set up like uh, bean jars and they'll proportionalize like how much you spend in family time and they'll measure it in days. I'm curious if we did that with prayer and scripture reading in the Christian life, I wonder how many days of prayer we would actually accumulate over the course of our lives, like how many hours we actually spend. That'd be a good thought experiment. But today, we're starting the fundamentals because we need to agree on what prayer is. So we're going to be reading various excerpts across the Bible. There uh, will be some initial verses on the screen. Most of them will be on your handout, but most of the scripture will not be put up there. So you can listen and follow along, but reference it for uh, when you go home. And that's really important because there's so much we could say on prayer, but we're not going to get to everything, especially on one short sermon. Not a sermon can do everything. So my homework for you all is... After you listen today and hear today, I want you to go home and over the course of the week, think about what we didn't talk about prayer today, what we didn't mention, what we didn't have time for, maybe an emphasis. What, what do you know about prayer? There's so much wisdom and experience in the church. Many of you have been Christians many more years than I have that if we tallied it up, I'm curious what everybody could talk something about prayer, how God's answered prayer, what they've experienced in prayer. So think through the week. What is prayer? Why do we do it? How, what have you heard about? And then next Sunday morning during Sunday school, if you get the time, or in a Bible study sometime, talk about what we didn't talk about today. And then report it back. That's a good way we can, as a church and a group can think about prayer because our sermon series are going to be talking about prayer for the next 11 or 12 weeks. So let's start thinking together as a group about prayer. 
and let's share our experiences together. With that all that being laid, foundations, let's pray. We're going to call upon God together. We're going to be answering our two questions. Father God, we come before you. We come together as your people. We're here to read your word on this thing called prayer, what it is and why we do it. Show us, Lord, what this thing is, why we spend so many hours, why we talk to you, why we do this. And Lord, we need you because we can't do life without you. Thank you for your divine presence that you say is in your people. Thank you you're we're here with us this morning. Pray that you would speak clearly. Let nothing be said that shouldn't be said. And give us ears to hear and a heart to obey. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so our first question, our first foundational question on prayer, we're asking what is it? What is prayer? And I chose three sermons or three scripture samples for us today. And as we're going to read these three that come up on the screens, I want you to look for a pattern that you should see through scriptures. Because even if you never read a Christian theology book or a book on prayer, the scripture alone describes what this thing called prayer is. And there are three elements to prayer that I want that I think you'll see, and we'll come do it. But let's read together. Try to look for these patterns in prayer. We have three scriptures. We're going to answer the question what it is. There are three parts to it. And there'll be three scripture readings. And see if you can find some variation. Different words may be used. But in general, there are three parts that make the foundation of prayer. So our first scripture reading is Psalm 34, 4 through 7. It says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Psalm 86, 1 through 7 says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. And our third scripture reading Psalm 145, 17 to 20 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Did you see a pattern in these psalms? Different words and different descriptions are used, different verbs, but the general pattern of this thing we call prayer, again, has three uh, essential components to it. Man speaks, God listens, God answers. The fundamental thing that makes prayer what it is is that man speaks, God listens, God answers. 
And as simple as that sounds, if we had to synthesize it, though, into some kind of concise statement, we could maybe word it this way. I put it this way. I said, prayer is communication between the creator and the creature, between God and his people. Prayer is simply just communication between the creator and the creature, the made things, between God and his people. Because man speaks, God listens, God answers. It's communication. It's this back and forth, it seems. And without really elaborating on that definition or the finer points of what it means that God answers prayer, we got to agree on that fundamental. If God does not answer prayer, like we just read in the Psalms, over and over again, the psalmist said, God, you answer me. I know you answer me. If we don't believe that, I don't think anybody doubts that we pray. I would say most of us don't doubt that God listens. But I bet you, if we did the secret survey of the heart, many of us may be challenged on what that means that God actually answers our prayers. If we could really do a survey of the heart, I bet we'd say, well, I know intellectually God does because the Bible says so, but dot, 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 I have not experienced something like that or so on and so on. And that is where we can fall into great error. If we don't believe God answers prayer, then why do we do it? But again, we'll be going over that over the course of this series. We'll see how the father answered their son And I hope to convince you over the next 12 weeks through the life of Jesus that our Father in Heaven does answer prayer. But today, we're just sticking with the factual truth He indeed does answer. So, prayer is communication between God and His people, the Creator and the creature. Now, our next foundational question. Now that we know what prayer is, why do we do it? Why do we pray? And this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. Why do we pray? Why do we do it? Well, I think first off, of all the things, of all the reasons we could come up for prayer, of all the scriptural reasons, I think the foundational, primary, purposeful reason of why you and I have to and need to pray is because it is a commandment. It is what the Puritans and older Christian writers would call a Christian duty, a have-to of the church, a have-to of the people of God. Something that you do because God says to do it. Which means whenever God gives commands to his people, it means that it's ultimately for your good and for his glory. It is not a bad thing when God commands his people. And we know that this is, prayer is a command because even a small selection of just the New Testament alone, church, just a small selection of the epistles of the apostles, the letters to the church, will reveal to us some form of a command to the church to pray. Three examples. Romans 12, 11 and 12 will say, Paul writing to the Roman church, he says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Again, he's a command. Be constant in prayer. 1 Thessalonians five sixteen to 18. Again, a parallel uh, phraseology Paul is using. He'll say things like, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Again, be constant in prayer, pray without ceasing. We're seeing a pattern. And then 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, Paul talking to his protege, Timothy, he says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. 
for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we, Christians, may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So again, just three short scriptural examples. There is some form, some injunction, some command, some exhortation for the people of God to pray and have communication with God. It's so abundantly clear, and yet prayer is so neglected in many churches. And, I, and again, we would say, why? Well, it's not because the Bible doesn't say so. It's clearly a command, a have-to of the church. And again, the apostles, they taught this to us because Christ taught them to pray, and Christ is God. He knows what we need, and he knows what you need, and you and I, we need to pray. It's a commandment. Which means not praying is not an option for the people of God. You don't have the option to not pray. You have to, which sounds weird. Why would you tell someone they have to have communication with God? Well, because foundationally, it's a commandment. It's something you have to do. And then we'd have to say, well, if it's a have to, which sounds weird telling someone you have to pray, even though we know it's a commandment, Think of what that means when we willingly do not pray. Disobedience to the Lord is sin. No matter what you want to call it, if you're willingly not engaging the Lord in prayer, whatever that looks like in your Christian life, you are willfully disobeying the Lord. And disobedience, even of all stripes, is just sin. There's no other way to put it. Disobedience is sin. So if you're actively not praying or seeking the Lord, whatever language you use for prayer, and you're just willingly not doing it, even if it's because you're not making time or whatever, on some level, it's disobedience and sin. If it's a command, something we have to, a Christian duty, and we're not doing it, it's sin then. And I think it's hard for us to categorize that as sin. In the same way, it's hard for us to categorize neglect of the scriptures as sin. I don't think we're what we often think like that in the modern church. We often think, well, I know I should, or I will get to it, but I don't think we categorize not praying and not engaging the scriptures as sinful behavior. I don't think we do. But if it's a command, how else can we categorize it? To not pray willingly, even ignorantly, or because you ran out of time or whatever. If prayer is not a part of our life, somehow we're, in, we're sinning. We're missing the mark of what we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. And a man named Richard Baxter, he was a pastor who lived in the 1600s, a long time ago. He wrote a book for pastors, learning how to be pastors and how they're supposed to shepherd their flock. He talked about this very thing. Hear what he said. This is a man in the 1600s. He said, two pastors concerning families and this thing called prayer as a Christian duty, a have-to of the church. He said, we must have special eye upon families to see that they are well-ordered and the duties of each relation is performed. The life of religion and the welfare and glory of both the church and the state depend much on family, government, and duty. If we suffer as pastors to neglect this, we shall undo all. If any good be begun by the ministry of the church in any soul, a careless, prayerless, worldly family is likely to stifle the work that God is trying to do in the church. Or very much hinder it. But if you could get the heads of the families, fathers, to do their duty, 
to take up the work where the pastor left it and to help the ministry of prayer in the family, what abundance of good might be done. I beseech you, therefore, if you desire the spiritual health and welfare of the people of God in your church, do all you can to promote family religion. To this end, let me entreat you to attend the following things. And this is when he gets really specific. He says, first, when you visit a family, ask the master of the family, the father, whether he prays with his family and reads scripture to them. If not, labor to convince the head of the family that to neglect such things is sin. And if you have an opportunity, pray with the family before you go and give them an example of what you would have them to do and how they should learn to pray. Perhaps, too, it might be well to get a promise from them that the father of the household and the family will make more conscience of their duty for future Christian service. This guy wrote in the 1600s, and he's not writing anything new or that's changed in the Bible. He's making it, he's, he's telling you, he's like, when you pastors visit the families and you ask them about their private Christian life, which doesn't really exist, he goes, you need to ask them, do they read the scripture and pray as a family, especially the fathers? And he goes, if not, you need to remind them that neglect like that is sin. That's heavy words. But I think there's a lot of truth in that. Because church, beloved and chosen of God, the people of God, it is God's will that you pray and that you seek him in prayer. And God's commandments are not burdensome for the people of God, but they should be our delight. We should love to obey God. We should love to pray and seek him. We should love his word and to read it. That should be normal for us. And I believe in this church it is. But I guarantee you, if we did the secret survey of all Christendom across the world, especially in the United States, I bet you there are many people who just don't pray or don't read the word. And no one ever looks to them in the face and say, do you understand that sin? You're disobeying your father who says you need to pray because it's for your good and for his glory. Has it ever been explained to you like that? This thing called prayer, though, it's so much more than just a command. It's not just this thing written on stone out there for you to obey. It's relational. For our communication with God, it's crucial to our relationship with God. It's more than just a command, beloved. It's more than just this arbitrary thing where God says, you need to pray, like robot. It's, no, it's relational to its core because it's communication. It's crucial to our relationship with the Lord. And it's crucial, first off, because it, prayer is God's method for God's people to receive his good gifts. God designed this thing called prayer as a way for you to seek and receive from your Heavenly Father. So again, it's not just this arbitrary, just speaking to the air. It's relational. It's seeking God for what you need. In the context of teaching the disciples to learn to pray, because they we're going to go over next week with the Lord's Prayer, but they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. He's, the words we're going to read is in context of the Lord's Prayer, about how prayer is our way of receiving from the Lord. Luke 11, 9 to 13 says Jesus' words concerning why prayer is God's means or method for us receiving from him. He says to the disciples, he goes, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. 
What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Which would be like a really jerk thing to do. I don't know why you do that. Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. That's gross. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So it's in this passage, Jesus shows us that prayer is relational. And he compares our prayer life to the relationship that a father should have with their children. Especially when you have a needy and hungry child who comes to their dad asking for food. He frames it in that form. Because which of you dads out there, which of you fathers, knowing your child is genuinely hungry, would be so cruel and so evil to hear the simplest request for food and meet the need, a legitimate need of hunger, with evil. I mean, it would be like if my daughter Julia came to me and was like, Daddy, can I have goldfish or Teddy Grahams? And I was like, sure, honey. And I handed her a bottle of rat poison or cyanide. Nobody would do, even lost people would say, well, that's just, that's sick, that's twisted in a normal way, right? That's, that wouldn't make sense. Why would you do that? Any reasonable person would think such a thing like that is evil. And that's the point Jesus is trying to make. He's using the neg- negative example of you normal sinful people doing even a remotely good thing like giving your kid food, saying that if you all can agree that even simple, sinful people can do something good that should be normal to them, how much better does your heavenly father give to those who ask him? It's this relationship model, he says, in the same way your children come to you and you give and it delights you and it makes their little eyes beam when you give presents or something like that. How much more do you, should your, does your heavenly father enjoy that to for his children? And that's the comparison he's making. God is good and God's a good giver. God loves giving to his children. God delights when we ask him. He delights in giving to us. It's a good thing. And God loves meeting our needs. Our Heavenly Father can give us so much better than we can ask for. And not only that, by recognizing our role in this relationship model Jesus has of a child to a parent, prayer teaches us what our relationship to God really is like. We are the children in this model, correct? Which means no matter how self-sufficient or wise or sophisticated or rich or wealthy or powerful you may be or think you are, in God's eyes, we are all needy children. You are insufficient to take care of you in this life. Because man was not designed to live separate from the Lord. We were designed to walk with God in the garden. That's, and we see that in the Bible. We're meant to have a relationship with God. He is our Father in heaven, which means He takes care of us. You can't take care of you in this life. Nor, when you come to that realization, should you want to. If you know that you can barely get by sometimes, even if you have money, wealth, or power, or any of those things, the Bible says we're still empty, blind, and naked, and you come to that realization, and God's like, I can give you so much better than what you think you need and have. That should be like, sign me up, Jesus. If you can give better than what I think I need or want, sign me up. And that's how the Bible describes the people of God, the children of God. You can't take care of you. I can't take care of me. Not in a spiritual way, not in a real way. We can't do genuine life as God genuinely describes life should be like, separate from him. You may be able to make it through life with money. That's not what we're talking about. 
but you will lack the fundamental things of what life is supposed to be like. Peace, love, joy, those types of things, the fruit of the Spirit, true relationship with your Creator. If you don't have prayer, you will not have those things. They are only received through the relationship model of prayer. That's why prayer is crucial to our relationship with God. And this has been true in the beginning when God created the garden, and it's true in the new heavens and the new earth. We will be dependent upon God as creatures, created things, for eternity. Which is good news, because you have something bigger and more powerful on your side. You have your Heavenly Father, who wants to take care of you. Therefore, like children coming to their dads, wanting snacks and food, Guys, don't hesitate coming to your Heavenly Father with all your needs, even some of your, even your wants. Come to God. Talk to Him about what's going on in your life all the time, what you need, what you want. God delights when you come to Him in faith like that. And this is by God's good design, and it brings Him great joy when we, His people, recognize, without you, Father, we can do, no- we can do nothing. We're hopeless. That is one of the crucial elements of why we pray. And not only do we have this need to be fed and clothed in our wants, we also have a very real and very present need to be saved from the evil one. And his greatest weapons are called temptation. The temptation is to be seduced by our sinful appetites and our sinful desires to a point where we disobey our heavenly Father harming our relationship with him. The devil wants you to be sidetracked and filled with earthly goods. And you need to be delivered from those things. Prayer helps you escape temptation. And Christ warns us about this. He shows us this model. He says on the eve of his betrayal in the garden, talking to the disciples, he says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. I mean, listen carefully to the words of the Son of God, church. You may have the greatest desire to obey and serve God. You may have the best intentions that you're going to live a godly life, but in your own strength, in your flesh, we are weak and earthly, and honestly, we're powerless. You and your own ability have no power to oppose the evil one. You do not. And Martin Luther The reformer, he put it so well, so pointedly in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He says this, Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Meaning, you and I, we are absolutely no match for the evil one in our own strength. We are not. Absolutely not. So as simple as it sounds, prayer is crucial to our relationship with God because prayer is the means God has given us to escape temptation calling on the Almighty in prayer to fight for us and protect us is how you and I stay faithful and obedient to the Lord. That's how we maintain a right relationship with God. It's as, as simple as that sounds, prayer is needed to escape sin, to escape the evil desires of your flesh. I know that sounds fundamental, But that's, again, prayer is one of those things. When we're not praying, what are we really telling God? By not praying for help to escape temptation, by not praying for God's strength to endure, we're basically telling God, 
I am tough and mighty and can endure without you. I don't really need you. And if you can't even take care of yourself in the mundane matters of life, can you really take care of your spirit? Can you really fight off the evil one on your own? And the answer is no, you cannot. And lastly, prayer is crucial for our relationship with God because prayer is ultimately an expression of love for God. For all relationships need true and real communication, especially marriage. Can you imagine, for those who are married, can you imagine never having a real communication relationship with your spouse? Would you even really be married if you never spoke to one another or communicated? Or if you, ever, if you never spent time together? Or if you never ate meals together or you were never intimate? Could you, would you really be married? You would essentially just be two strangers living under the same house wondering why this person was eating your food and hadn't left yet. It would be weird, right? You'd be like, man, why do they keep taking my stuff and not leaving? It just wouldn't make sense, right? That's not, that's not the picture of marriage in the Bible. And even lost people recognize that stuff, right? But sadly, how many marriages end in divorce because of a breakdown of communication? The, 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 the strands and the fabric of the relationship just come undone when the strength that holds them together is communication. Man, you know how many non-Christian psychological books are written on communication and relationships? Like, there's just so many out there that even lost people and a casual observation of human nature can catch this. How much more should the people of God recognize that, oh yeah, we need to have communication with God? Because this thing called marriage is our earthly experiential picture of the spiritual reality of Christ's love for you and me, his people. We are called the bride of Christ. We're married to the Lord Jesus. We are his people, his bride, his church. That's We're told that. So if a marriage relationship on earth needs communication to be real, live, active, normal, healthy goodness, that type of stuff, how much more do we need genuine communication with the living God to have a true marriage with him, a spiritual marriage? What are we saying by not praying, by by not engaging God in prayer, we're basically admitting our relationship with God is either non-existent or not important to us, and that we're basically confessing that we're a wayward bride, that we have no interest in our husband, Jesus Christ. Because those who pray little, love little. But thanks be to God, even in our lack of prayer and our weakness, Jesus is the perfect husband. He's always faithful to us, even though we're not faithful to him. He's always faithful to his wandering and weak bride. And the good news is that he pursues us. And he doesn't leave us to our own devices. For the scripture says, Ephesians 2, 25 to 28, describing this marriage relationship we have with Christ, says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify or make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So we get this description of this washing and cleansing. Christ doesn't leave us as this weak, prayerless bride. 
He comes to us. He changes us. This, this idea of washing and cleansing and making holy. You might hear the word sanctification thrown around sometimes. Different words are used, but essentially, we are changed. God, when you're espoused to Christ, he doesn't leave you as a prayerless, non-communicating individual with him. He's not going to leave you like that. He promises not. He changes you spiritually, experientially. What other parts of the Bible call being conformed, which is our third and final reason of why we pray. We pray first because it's a command. We pray because it is crucial to our relationship with God, and we pray because prayer is one of the primary ways God conforms us to be like his son or changes us to be like Jesus. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And this is one of the great truths of the Bible. God's people were transformed. Over the course of our lives, God constantly makes us more and more like his son. This idea of being conformed, that word is like being shaped or molded. You ever been to the beach Maybe you as a kid or your own kids, you ever seen them take a bucket making sand castles and they put the sand in and they pat it down and they turn it over and they make a tower of the castle? The sand was conformed to the shape of the bucket. That description is what God does to you and me, only the bucket's shape in our scenario is Jesus and we are the sand. God molds and shapes you to be more and more like his son. We take on his image and prayer Communication with God, a true relationship with God, is the primary way, and he does it. And what God specifically works on a lot is changing your will, your desires, to be his will and his desires. We'll go over this prayer near the end of our sermon series, but one of the prayers of Jesus was, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. God is making you and I like that. Think of why, why does the Lord's Prayer, the foundational way we learn to pray, why do you think it begins with along those lines of, Father, may your will be done on heaven and on earth? Like That type of language is used for the people of God because we're supposed to be changed in our thinking to realize, man, God's will is the most important will in the universe. There's nothing more important than what God wants. And the only thing God ever wants is good. So we should be praying for those things. And anybody who's been a Christian long enough, who's been faithful in prayer and growing, they'll tell you, you know, I used to pray for a lot of things that, you know, they were important. But the older I get, I realize, you know what? Those things are important to God, and I get it, but I really just want God's will to be done. And that should be the same story for all of us. We used to really want, like, God, help me with this job, and and those are important. But really, then we step back, and you're like, you know, God, What do you want done in my life? What do you want done in the church? What do you want done in the world? What is your will, Lord? That should be what we'd be praying for because everything else will follow. And praying for and desiring God's will, when we do that, our prayers get answered more. The more you pray for God's will, the more prayer gets answered. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says, This is the confidence that we have towards God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked for him. Do you see the cycle he's saying? He goes, if we ask in his will, God will do it. And if we know that God will do his will that we're asking for, then we should do it more. 
That is the goal of the church and Christian life, is to pray and ask for God's will. As simple as that seems, the more we walk with God, the more we're like Christ, prayer is that thing that changes us to realize, you know what? God, you've shaped me and molded me through this relationship. I really just want what you want now, Lord. I don't care about those things anymore. Kind of in the same way, when you talk to young Christians and you talk about like the return of Christ and the rapture, do you know how many times I've heard as a youth minister, especially younger females, say, well, I don't want Jesus to come back before I get married. Or I don't want Jesus to come back before I have kids or go bungee jumping or something crazy, right? They'll have something like, I, I want Jesus to come back, but not before I get my desire fulfilled. And that's that fundamental turning point where I think we'll start seeing the way back we think about this relationship with God and be like, you know what? We're told in Scripture that we should be praying for the return of Jesus. We should be desiring his return. I should be praying about those things. Praying for God's will is the most important thing we can do. And God's good will is that you glorify him and enjoy him forever. That's the will of God, that you enjoy him and glorify him. And now we've talked about all this thing about God's will. But here's a warning in all this. We're going to finish on this warning. It's God's will for you to be in the Son, to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And to those who do not have that, those who don't recognize who Jesus is and what he's done on the cross and the need to be forgiven of their sins, the Scripture describes them as unrighteous, not right with God, outside of relationship with God. And the tragedy is that those who are in that state, there are so many scriptures, we're going to read three of them, but so many scriptures that say that if you're that person, if you're not right with God, if you're unrighteous, if you're outside of Jesus Christ, the Bible makes it so abundantly clear, God does not listen to your prayers. Proverbs 15, 29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Proverbs 28.9 says, If one turns away his hearing from the law, like hearing the word of God, even his prayer is an abomination. And 1 Peter 3.12 says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and God's ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's only three. If you do a Bible search, there are so many warnings that God does not hear the prayer of the unrighteous, those outside of Christ. That should be a sobering warning to people. And it should break our hearts. And if that's you today, and all these benefits of prayer, this relationship with God, the why we pray, having a relationship with God, having being taken care of by God, him being your true father and you being a true son, if you have not called upon the Lord Jesus, when you pray for whatever it is you think you want or need, if you haven't made the good prayer yet, the prayer of faith saying, Christ, receive me, forgive me of my sins. If you haven't done that yet first, God does not hear your prayers. So think of all the millions of people in this world who think that they're just praying. It doesn't do anything. Until you ask God to forgive you of your sins and bow the knee to Jesus, your prayers are not heard. And we're going to close our service as the altar calls. We always do. But if that's you today, and you want to have a true relationship with God and experience what we're talking about in this thing called prayer, 
come and pray and ask to receive the Lord Jesus. And that opens up the door to be a child of the living God, to be taken care of in this life and have an eternal home. Will you do that today? The altar will be open.